0: Welcome to the Category Thinkers Podcast, a feature of the Category Thinkers community. And while other category design podcasts are interviews of success cases and maybe some explanations of lofty concepts in category design, we're different. We're a community. So part of what we're trying to do is give you access to some of the biggest names in category design. So we decided to host a different type of episode, a book club with none other than the author of Super Consumers and co-creator of Category Pirates, Eddie Yoon. Eddie joined us for over an hour, and first he explained the overall concept of Super Consumers and then sat there taking questions from our community in a live Zoom event. He helped our community members understand how they particularly could Identify supers, answered tricky questions such as the old Henry Ford adage of consumers asking him to build a faster horse and why super consumers does not fly in the face of that advice, and contextualized the concept to B2B service companies. This was moderated by the co founders of Category Thinkers, John Ruggie, Mike Damphouse, and me, Pablo Gonzalez. And if you want to be part of events like this in the future, go join the almost 600 other category thinkers inside of our free Slack community that you can find at categorythinkers.com. That's where you stop listening and join in on the conversation. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors, Category Design Advisors at categorydesignadvisors.com helped us write the POV for this community. And I just attended one of their workshops in New York City it was phenomenal. Go check them out at categorydesignadvisors.com and be the stage.live, which is the company that is producing this podcast and providing the community strategy. So now prepare yourself for a great AMA session here with the legendary Eddie Yoon. Welcome, everybody, to the first ever. Category Thinkers book club discussion with Eddie Yoon about his work, Super Consumers. I'm Pablo Gonzalez, co-founder of Category Thinkers and uh, founder and chief evangelist of Be BeTheStage.Live. I'm going to be moderating. I'd like to introduce John Ruggi, who is also co-founder of Category Thinkers, category designer and partner at Category Design Advisors. You want to say hi, John? Hey, guys. It's awesome to so
1: see so many people that I already know or have at least interacted with on Slack. That's really cool. So thanks for showing up. Glad you're here. Yeah, that's how community
0: works, right? We've got the community flywheel going. And of course, guest of honor today. He is the strategy Yoda and weird data wizard for gray space holding and on TV, if you follow him anywhere. He's the founder of Eddie Wood Grow, author of uh, many an HBR article about uh category design. I think he's the I think he's the pole position contributor to the HBR on category design articles. He's the co-creator of category pirates and of course the author of Super Consumers. Eddie, welcome to our community. Pumped to have you a part of it. Pumped to have you here featured and I love hearing you talk, man. I would love if you just start off by giving us a little backstory on how you came up with the book, Super Consumers, and how this category pirates thing took off. Give us a little peek behind the curtain there.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm, first of all, uh, honored to be here. Thanks, Pablo and and Ruji, for the invite. I'm a little nervous about matching your energy, Pablo, but I'll try my best. But yeah, the concept of super consumers I've worked with for probably the entirety of my career. Many of you will recognize it as just the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle on steroids, right? When you're trying to grow any business or any category that, again, you the 80-20 rule always applies. I believe the Pareto Principle was founded in Italy based on Italian landowners, right? And that that dynamic exists in all aspects of business, but in particular on the consumer front. And that I remember being amazed at how insightful it was and that how You can make water come from a rock in categories that people thought were pretty dead and more abundant. So my early, early in my career, so this is the origin story of it was I did some work for Swingline and this was circa year 2000 where websites were just coming about as the norm for corporations and Swingline had just launched their website and the president was late to our meeting because he was like, I'm sorry, the website's down the New York Times just put out an article about office space and about the fire engine red swing line stapler and everyone trying to order one and we don't make one for sale in e-commerce and we're all screwed up here. And it was what was fascinating for me was this was, you know, in category pirates we talk about this idea of obvious and non-obvious super consumers is an obvious insight. It's not something that you people will say, I've never heard of that before, generally speaking. However, I have found a whole host of non-obvious applications and ways of generating revenue for companies and clients using that, that I I think have been largely overlooked. And so you look at staplers and I can see the chats going on about it, everyone likes office space and like, it was one of those things where when we set out on the hypothesis, so all consulting assignments, you're trying to avoid boiling the ocean, especially as the junior guy on the team. And so you come up with a hypothesis, and one of the good old hypotheses that you can have is that there are super consumers of staplers. And I'd say half the client team was like, uh, you're insane. Those people cannot possibly exist, and who would actually be that? Absent, and I, I do have to thank, it's Mike Judge who did Office Space, right? And so perhaps if he had cast a more attractive, if Brad Pitt had played Milton, maybe there'd be a belief that there'd be more stapler super consumers. The hypothesis was contentious from the get-go. And what we found was that you follow the logic trail of do they exist? And of course they do. They exist in every category. And and in their case, about percent of consumers drove 70% of the category sales. And that the, the more kind of concentrated you went up the curve, the more extreme that it became. And so we ended up finding who are these people? And so it was A lot of clerical workers, as you can imagine, my favorite was the Chicago Lyric Opera office lady who, you know, in the course of a weekend was just doing this the whole weekend long. We'd ask her, how long did it take you to go through a box of 5,000 staples? She'd say, I do it in a weekend. And you're like, that's a whole lot of stapling, my friend, right? And the kind of the way the math works from a stapler is that one in every hundred times you use it, it'll jam on you. And usually you put too much paper or just product error and the like. And so if people use a stapler, I don't even know how many people have used a stapler in the last year or what, but back in the day, if you use a stapler once a month, then it would take you the better part of eight to nine years before it jammed on you. So jamming is an irrelevant thing. However, if you went through a box of 5,000 staples in a weekend, it was something that you did 50 times over the weekend and you were really stressed out because people are trying to get in and out and et cetera, et cetera. So the whole kind of how this ties to category design is the whole essence of what problem are we trying to solve for the category, right? And that problems that may not exist for the average consumer exist in quite rare form for the super consumer. That's insight number one. And that when we follow this kind of thread of, okay, they exist, the math says that they do, they have, and the the second impulse is that they're weird. Some of them are, right? Some of us are weird super consumers. But what you really dig into is that Every human, and this is a real important part, is that every business serves a consumer or a customer of some sort. A super consumer or customer is somebody at the extreme. The temptation is to dismiss them as weird, aberrant people that aren't the norm. They're not supposed to be like anybody else, right? And that's where you get to real problems, is that if you, it shows a real contempt for your fellow human that displays this kind of atypical behavior. Versus empathy that says, why is it the case? And that you, if you have the belief that somebody behaves oddly or different than you for a very logical reason, given their context and their circumstance, you're going to uncover problems that you may not have ever imagined or uh, had empathy for before that, right? So you, you go down that route and then you realize there's a set of workers, clerical workers, admins, office, rental car people and in, in their things that have a unique set of problems that the average person isn't aware of that is so motivating to them that um, they will go to great lengths and extreme to solve that problem so said differently the frodo is extraordinarily large and ginormous for them in a way that it is not for the average person and so when you get to that that that's how there was an, an office rental car manager that we made cry because she was heightened about the importance of a three-hole punch she got her contracts. And again, this sounds really analog and old, right? But it was back in the day, you got a contract, three-hole three punch them. She put them in a binder. She was extremely organized. And you might ask, why would she do that? She's not getting paid extra to do that. It turns out people in high stress, high repetitive jobs really value control in their lives. They don't control their circumstances. How many of us have yelled at an angry, you know, angrily at a rental car, airline person or whatever, lost her temper with it. These are people on the front lines. They deal with a lot of crap. They don't have a lot of control in their lives. So the one thing they can control is the paper. It can be organized and it can make them feel psychically really good. And that this lady was using a single hole punch to do her three hole punch things because Avis or Hertz or whomever, it was too cheap to give her a three hole punch thing. We gave her a three-hole punch from Akko Brands or Swingline at the, at the end of a discussion. And she started to cry because she was just like, I feel seen in a way that nobody else at my work has ever seen for me. And that lo and behold, that kind of, they exist. Yes, they're weird, but there's a logical reason why they do that. And if you understood the context of the problem that they had that is there an obvious problem that you can bring to them uh, in the from two is that in, in the stapler instance, it was like, we already had the product category, which was heavy duty staplers or electric staplers. So in this scenario, the category actually existed. And the strategy was largely about um, how do you execute it at retail? Because it was like, did you need a big old marketing budget? No, because these crazy stapler super consumers, guess what? They, they are in Staples and Office Max and Deep. I forget which one is still left, but they're in them four to six times a month. One, they have to go replenish supplies. Two, they enjoy browsing these stores. That's what super consumers do. They're not always in a place of purchase just to fulfill, but they enjoy it. So if they're in the store four to six times a month, you don't need to attract them to the point of purchase. So you don't need a big old marketing budget. What you need to do is fix the point of sale in a way that is attractive to them and presents the problem and the solution in a way that they'd never thought about beforehand so it went to signage about anti-jamming it went to signage about hey did you know that a heavy duty stapler almost never jams and did you know that an electric stapler speeds up your productivity and organizes your life and yada, yada yada so they put up signage they had they moved the shelf to an outlet so you could plug in the darn electric stapler so people could try it out and use it we moved them from floor level to eye level and that was really important. At least that was a proposal. Jeff Ackerberg and I, the president, we went to all three office superstores, Office Depot, Office Max, and Staples. Depot and Max said, this is brilliant. We had no idea these super consumers existed. Let's totally redo the shelf. And by the way, because nobody else has told us that this was a possibility, we're going to give you more shelf space and therefore you know, blah, 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 blah. And their business, their total stapling category went up 19%. In the nine months after we implemented the work, heavy duty and electric staple shares went up a hundred percent. Wow. At, at a price point that was twice or seven times X what the normal one was. Now we had the perfect beta control, which was staples told us we were exactly the irony of it is amazing. they were yeah. like, you guys are insane. These people don't exist. And this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard anyone say. So go away. By the way, they were the leaders in private label. They're like, yeah, we're doing fine and all of that kind of stuff. And so they it completely ignored the strategy. And of course, perfect, their total category sales went down 9% in the same nine-month period. I've never had a more stark example. And again, for those of you in the tech industry, that might not seem that exciting or illuminating, but it was like, look, if it can work in Staples, it can work anywhere. That's the whole point of the whole thing that I took away from it with. And so I, I always took that lesson as a you know what, when I'm up against it and in, in consulting, it's a roller coaster. It's fun, but it can be scary. Like, how do I solve this problem? I've never dealt with this. This is a different industry. I can always default back to, I know where the North Star is. There are always super consumers somewhere. They behave oddly, but there is a logical reason if you listen and step into their shoes and that if they uncover different problems with a more massive Frodo that, if designed correctly, can actually open up either grow an existing category that was dormant or, or overlooked, or give you the tools and the insights that you need to create a new category. Because probably, probably this was a long winded answer to my <laughs> own question, but like the one of the, the 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 Venn diagram of where super consumers and category design overlap is that you ask an average consumer what would need to be true for you to pay ten x the price of cereal or software or whatever, right? They're going to laugh at you and say, you're insane to hang up the phone or click off the Zoom. A super consumer will say, now that you asked, there are many things that you could do to get me to spend 10X or pay a 10X premium, solve this particular problem in this particular context in this particular way. If you could do X, Y, and Z or A, B, and C, the list of things that you could do will be enormous. And that part of the litmus test for me of, are you actually creating a new category or not? Yes or no. Is, is the pricing question? Is there something else that you can compare it to pricing wise? Because usually, what ends up happening in my experience with category queens is that they're really hard to price compare. It's, uh there's not a, really a substitute. And so, when, when I did work with Keurig, it was like, I suppose it's a 10x premium to Folgers, but it's a 20% of the cost of a Starbucks. So, how do I think about price? The price question is confounding. And that's when you know you have a category creator when It is a premium to one category, but a value to another category. Like that is a telltale sign. And that often I will say the litmus test for a lot of people have named X, Y, Z company. Oh, we're a new category. We've designed this and that. And I'm like, okay, show me the pricing and show me the confusion. And I'll show you a category queen. Yes or no. And that's the whole thing is that a, a super is a shortcut to strategy, a shortcut when you don't have data and you don't, maybe you can't afford it or it's not clear or whatever. And it's a shortcut to, as a measuring stick for, is this something truly different or not?
3: And if not, then what can I do to make it different? Eddie, one one thing I've always found interesting is, totally believe in the concept of super consumers. Play Bigger says, don't ask your customers what they want. And it's the old Henry Ford. If he had asked what people wanted, they'd say a faster horse carriage. So I'm curious if you use that analogy, which was yeah. in Play Bigger with your super consumer analogy, what your thoughts are? Are you looking at their vision of the market or are you looking at your vision of the market? So I,
2: I 100% agree with what the Play Bigger guys say about it, in particular around, um, don't ask an average consumer an average question. And then you'll get below average responses with it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. What I am saying is look at the problems that a somebody who cares quite deeply about a legacy category is trying to solve for, right? So... In the mm-hmm. Henry Ford example, this is an interesting one of who is the customer or client here, right? If it's the end user, you would, to your point about faster horses, they would say that would make sense. Now I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of that example back in the day. But um, if you think about the hierarchy of consumers, it, in general, it goes B2C, but B2B is a B2B customer in a category is always going to spend more than a B2C one. I'm going to make up some history here that the, super consumer for Ford back in the day, might've been, I want a hundred of these cars to run my enterprise, to run some other random business or whatever. And that, hey, for me to make this work, what would be nice if it was all standardized, all the same color, so that if I got a dent, I just had the same replacement color that was there, very much like the Southwest model, right? And that you don't want... Now, super consumers, you can listen to their words because they're often quite articulate and that, I would contend that you take any company and you take the max power user, super consumer of any category, they're going to understand the ins and outs of the product or the service better than the actual creators of it. I I absolutely believe that. And that the greatest entrepreneurs oftentimes are themselves super consumers trying to solve their own problem. It's not about Q&A. It is about observing the problem and the quest that an extreme customer is trying to solve for in understanding why are they extreme in the first place, and then what could you do if everybody else was like that?
0: I like the tie-in of the super consumer being the person or people or set of people who are affected the most by the problem, and that's why it's a tie to category design. And therefore, their understanding and how they speak of the problem being the thing that you can plug into your languaging, and therefore, these examples that you've talked about of uncovering all all this market cap by being able to get that part right and increasing word of mouth and all these other things. Um, We've had 20 people join us since we started talking, including co-founder of Category Thinkers himself and partner in Category Design Advisors, Mike Damp, -Damp. You want to say hi real quick?
3: (laughs) Hey, what's up, guys? I had a power outage at (laughs) Four twenty-five. We were T-minus five minutes, and my whole house shut down. But luckily, we got back quickly. So I'm glad to be here with my buddy Eddie. I'm up in Podunk, New Hampshire, man. This is we we still we still cook outside sometimes.
0: And I appreciate everybody playing by the rules, right? In order to moderate a a, a big group conversation like this, what we ask is that everybody. Stays on mute. And when you want to jump in, raise your hand. I'll moderate this stuff and we'll try to keep it going so that you can get to ask your questions. Let's keep doing that. Tyler, you raise your hand nice and early, man. I would love to hear what you got to
4: contribute to the conversation. Welcome. For sure. First off, I appreciate you guys having this event. Eddie, thanks for being here. Um, To preface, I haven't gotten to read the specific Super Consumers book, just finished the newer book, and uh, I've read a lot of works from the category pirates themselves. You guys really helped um, me understand that we were finding these super consumers and how we could utilize them. Awesome. Some quick context to my question. Uh, We built an Internet extension to help combat loneliness and social isolation online and found some early virality, which led to us gaining a bunch of very valuable super consumers between about five to 15. And we're always building with them and for them. But are there moments when we should be cautious of this process and maybe look towards more of our vision versus the way that they're trying to steer it?
2: Let me see if this gets at your question, Tyler. One of the key watchouts is being clear-eyed about, uh, what is the name of your product and category? It's called the Local Universe, the Local Universe Extension, yeah. You want to separate out who is a Local Universe Extension super Mm -hmm. and who is a Lonely Nest writ large super. So there's been a lot of stuff written about. Is super consumers really talking about just talking to your best customers and your brand users? And not necessarily. No, and actually, that can be very dangerous because you don't want an echo chamber of people just telling you're great and all that kind of stuff. What you want are people who are essentially polygamous, right? That super consumers are rarely loyal to one brand because they have needs that go beyond any one company's ability to provide it. And frankly. Probably the most important idea, if I could rewrite my book, I would rewrite it around this idea, is that a super consumer one category is a super consumer of nine other categories. Mm-hmm. And We built that on the Nielsen data set. They acquired my old firm, and it was very clear then. What you're really trying to solve for is somebody who uses the lonely universe extension, but is also a super in nine other categories that are adjacent or related to loneliness in some way, shape, or form, and that they can use that kind of wide-angle lens to say, it's books and it's online communities and gaming, it's social clubs, it's who knows what, right? Different things that I use to fight the category of loneliness. But then when I compare lonely extension to some pretty far away category, then the ahas come about from a design perspective. You know what? I use, I don't know. I remember at one point in Germany, I think they were like at, at different all department stores, they were saying like... They were having seniors night on Friday nights, like for seniors to come intermix and whatever and stuff like, hey, how does that work? And how did they solve the problem of loneliness? And what can I beg, borrow, and steal from that? Comparing my lonely universe extension to that, what is the good and the bad and the ugly of what it tells you, right? Because the whole kind of designs theory of supers is that problem matters to them so much that if you looked at their entire credit card spending and you looked at their Google calendar, They're doing many things to solve that problem and that in that context, when you look across the constellation of categories, there's so much more design potential that exists from saying, shoot, they do it this way in this far field category. Why can't I do it in my category? Does that make sense?
4: Yes, I did have one quick question from the very beginning of your answer when you talked about supers of the loneliness problem versus supers of our specific extension that we made. Were you saying to more so focus on of the loneliness problem? Is where have a balance of that. both. You, okay. you
2: certainly want people who are power users of the lonely universe extension. Yeah. It's more important to focus on. So I'll give you an example. Beachbody was a client of category pirates. And w- w- one of the amazing things that I found we saw was that the people who were the greatest super consumers for Beachbody, the people who have gotten really fit, they worked on their nutrition, they, they were all at some level of, I wasn't happy with my health. And that if you dig deeper into their origin story, they were a little loaf of self-esteem, but invariably it was some sort of a traumatic event that occurred in their life. I got divorced, someone died, I lost my job, whatever, that, that spiraled them into depression. And then it became emotional eating. They got to a place of unhealth and that, that was a spiral out. So like you can't solve for fitness without solving for the entire constellation of everything that's out there, which is what Carl Daykler has really done with his whole health esteem platform. It's, I don't want you to have a beach body and I don't want you to just eat well. I actually want you to feel well and how you feel is as important as how many pull-ups that you can do. And that's the whole kind of empathy around this whole bit is the reason why you have to look at the constellation and not just your category and not even just your company.
0: Great question, Tyler. Joe Zabak, I know that you and Tyler were getting into it about his company in the community, but I see that you have a question yourself, my friend. Go ahead.
5: Yeah, thanks, Pablo. So when you were talking, Eddie, about Swingline, you eventually uncovered like this problem or metric around if you're using stable so much, like how often it jams really becomes a thing, right, and you can use like the phrase dig deeper," and then when you were talking about beachbody, you said invariably, when you dig deeper, um, you uncovered some kind of traumatic event, and so once you find the supers, it become it it seems to be very clear, like in spending time with them. You'll find problems in the language to really bring life and inform the snowball marketing effect and advertising the signage of jam free and all that. I'm curious about the step, like right before that. What are like the most reliable breadcrumbs for finding supers in the first place, right? You let off with 70% of sales come from 30% of consumers. But when you're doing this category science, this weirdo data science, right? Yep. Are you, Are you like looking for those little Venn diagrams and then inspecting the intersections to find the supers that you then go deep with? Or what's that process? And what do those breadcrumbs look like?
2: Yeah, good question. So the way that I think about it is, again, Alternative Universe, I named the book Weird People and Weird Data, right? Because what you are looking for is data around your customers. And ideally, it's data that you have so that you can replicate it over and over again. So step one is, what is the weirdest data I've ever seen about the people who buy my business or the category today? If you have a data scientist, great, but just play with the data. And some of this might be, can I ask you what category you're in? I spend most of my
5: time in healthcare, but I'm working with a couple of clients right now. So What kind of healthcare? So we had a platform that connected patient journeys. It's a layer that sits on top of The CRM equivalent in the healthcare space. Patient journeys as an example,
2: right? The ideal data, weird data for customers is somebody spends a lot, somebody spends a little, right? If you can't get that, then you can get to, hey, somebody in this zip code, this is my favorite actually, the super geos, is somebody in this zip code spends way more per capita than somebody else in the zip code, right? So that's taking sales in an area, dividing it by the number of customers or people that you have there, and then voila, right? Right. But thirdly is if you don't have spending data, you're just looking for how people spend their time. And healthcare is a good one because it's weird with insurance and all that kind of jazz. But so the way that I would think about it, Joe, is that I am looking for aberrations for people and how they spend their money or their time or their emotion. And depending upon what data you have available to you, you can see what's there. But money is the easiest one. Time is another one. Like people's time is precious. And Somebody who is repeating the journey over and over again, there's something weird going on there, right? Like, why would you, why would anyone spend more time in a hospital than they actually need to do? And that somebody is doing something that is aberrant and that there is a reason why. And if you can dig into the reason, there's going to be an aha there. And then thirdly, from an emotion standpoint, what people talk about, often in customer service, the greatest wins and uh, evangelists come from people who are the angriest with you. And then you kill them with kindness and they convert over and become whatever, right? The enemy when it comes to emotion and super consumers is indifference. You actually want love, but you actually also want hate. It's energy that is what you're looking for. And that people who expend immense amounts of emotional energy in either direction. Like one of the first steps that I'll say is step into the shoes of a super consumer and write a love and a hate letter to the category. Easy step to do. Somebody, now again, not an average person, somebody who absolutely loves a category and somebody who absolutely despises the category and tell them, write your, whatever the Taylor Swift breakup song, I forget whatever Write that equivalent to your category and then see what problems emerged that no one's ever really tackled that you can solve for there. And that in, in journey data is fantastic, but that those are the three things that I always look for is that the, the quality of your category design is the function of the quality of the problem that you're facing and you're trying to deal with. And that my my experience has been most people overlook the possibilities for a niche and more interesting problem or a grander one that can be uncovered only through talking with somebody who is extraordinarily invested financially, emotionally, or time-wise into the category.
0: Money, time, and emotion. Good stuff, Eddie. John Rougie, very nice of you to raise your hand as well. I see you have a question. Go ahead.
1: You can call it nice, but I know you'd be really upset with me if I didn't. So there's another motive there.
3: I'm not playing by the rules either. So I'm just interrupting when I'm ready.
1: <laughs> hey, you can't interrupt me though. So two things. One, I want to share an observation that validated a lot of what you've shared today. And then I want to ask a question that I believe is probably on the minds of a lot of the folks on the call. The the story I want to share is in the early 2000s, when Facebook games were really popular, Farmville was in its heyday. I was building a startup that was competing in that space, and we had a unique spin on it that incorporated cause marketing. And we looked at the data, and we saw people, most people spent no money, and then a bunch of people spent a couple bucks a month. And it was like a power law distribution. And we had people who would spend over $10,000 in a month, far beyond the utility you would ever get out of a game. And what you just said about the emotion, that connected some dots for me, because what they were doing was, it was some sort of sense of community and contribution that was filling a gap. And I didn't have your framework at the time. This was a decade and a half ago, but I would have loved to have gone back and interviewed those customers because they fit to a tee everything you described about aberrant behavior and weird behavior. And that I've never seen such a perfect example of everything you described. And they certainly contribute the, the lion's share of our revenue. I think, Ruji, if I remember correctly, in, in casual gaming,
2: 0.15% of the category users generate 50% of the revenue. It's exactly to your point Mm -hmm. Um, with that. And your analysis is is spot on. Where people will miss this is if you yourself are not, okay, I won't make you raise your hand, but who here has spent 10 grand on a Farmville type game? No one's going to raise their hand. Maybe somebody will, right? The inherent bias for all humans is to be like, that's really weird. And that's where you miss out on the opportunity. What's required is the humanity to just take people at face value. If you behave aberrantly, you may look different than me. You may have wildly different views that I disagree with, but if you behave in an extreme way, you are a fellow human and there is a logical, explainable reason and context for why you do what you do. And that perhaps if I understood that and I was in the same context, I might behave exactly the same. And if I could articulate that problem in that POV to a wide range of other people, maybe they will join as well. That's category design in a nutshell. And that the the weird aberrant behavior and the weird people that people in the, your initial you know this is junior high stuff ah, that person's weird. I'm going to dismiss them and put them down. That's you walking people walking by a billion dollar bill on the sidewalk. I'm going to dismiss that and can't possibly be anything but that person is just odd.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I love it. So the the question I have for you, you, we talked a lot about data and big data sets and exploring the nuances of that. I know a lot of the folks that I've met in our community are very on, very early on in their own journey. They got an idea for a startup or they're pre-revenue or they're still trying to explore the right audience and things like that. And so, how do you think about super consumers before you have really data to validate these? Like, what a super consumer is. What do you look for and How do you avoid a a false positive?
3: Yeah.
2: So if you're pre-revenue, then hopefully you have some point of view on what category you hope to source volume from, or you're trying, like your new category is addressing a missing in an existing category. And that if you find the extreme people in the legacy category, they will be the first to jump ship to your new category. That's why like Sometimes just looking at other data from other categories can be a good proxy for it if you don't have data. What we just talked about is look for emotion and time is is the other one if you don't have spending data. But at some point, you get pretty intuitive with this, right? So I was joking with Damp about the generator thing, right? And you guys, some of you have heard me talk about this. I've written about it, right? But uh, generators, uh, life insurance, and vitamins all serve the same benefit. Not obvious, but... If you can think through the life context for somebody who is a super in one category, what are the other nine? If you are the ninth category in the constellation that you don't have data for, solve for the other eight. What you'll find is that there's an abundance of data. Like The big one that I always talk about is that Peloton is having trouble, boggles the mind right? Like they should not have a customer acquisition problem. It all comes back to they overbuilt because they're forecasting, because they didn't understand super consumers and mostly because they didn't understand a super of one is a super of nine, right? Is that who buys a Peloton? Clearly somebody who is interested in fitness, but what are the other eight to nine adjacent categories with it? And clearly are they introverts? Maybe people who want to be lonely, like what we talked about beforehand, or more likely what I have found is that these people are the same ones that need to stay home largely because they've had a baby recently. Oh, okay. That's interesting. There's lots of data around people who have a baby. And then you follow the thread and it's, I'm interested in fitness and it's correlated to having a baby. So what could that possibly be? It might be that I just had a baby and I'm going to take some time off, but I eventually have to go back into the workforce and the exercise you may or may not like it, but for God's sake, that is 30 minutes of me time that I can get away from any of my children begging me for whatever. That's what It's my oasis and my escape, and that's what I'm going to go do. Or it could be it's my way of staying part of the world and connected, or it could be I'm re-entering the workforce, and there's a whole host of triggering ripple effects that come from it, and that you can train yourself to be very good when you lack the economic data. You lean on the empathy compass for somebody who has this problem that I'm solving for that I don't have data for What are the other ways in which they solve the problem and why? And let me look there for context and data that in a way that can supplement until I get
1: my own. Yeah. Thanks for that, Eddie. You just reminded me of an article I read this morning about biohacking. They didn't use the word supers, but it fit it to a T. I'm going to look it up when the next question comes up and drop it in here
0: because there's eight or nine categories that they explore in that piece. So. Thank you. Eddie, I'm really enjoying the ongoing theme of how curiosity is a connective tissue of like where people are falling short once they uncover this stuff. And speaking of curiosity, I got a question, but Lisa, raise your hand. Lisa Gonzalez, no relation. Yeah. Raise your hand. I would like for I would love to hear what you got to say.
1: Sure. So i our company is a B2B subscription business where the costs are somewhat fixed on a contract term. When you're thinking about time, what are some ways that you can identify super consumers and what might some other sources of data be when you're trying to identify who those super consumers might be?
2: Yeah. So if you have call center type data, so people who harass you. Hey, this doesn't work or whatever else. Like That's good information about it. You can look for time and emotion. If, you're, if your contracts are fixed and you don't have variance on the economic side, then those are the other two to look for that are going to immediately come to mind. There's lots of stuff you get pissed about when you buy a service or a product. If you don't care, you move on. And if it's not a lot of money, right? When do you actually complain about something? It's when your emotions are riled up in a way. And then on the flip side, when do you evangelize? It's because you care deeply about it and your emotions are riled up similarly. So customer service is a great way. People who take the time, because most of them just want to rather move on to spend more time with you, it's a good kind of sign for that. And then you're looking for the people from, the other one to think about is, ask people who have bought your product or service, who has had the greatest life transformation from it. And they may or may not express it, but it, it, it's somebody who you'll find some really fun stuff. So I, I did work for a gut health company and it's a finger prick. You measures your gut biome and your metabolites. They tend you send you a score back. And then you meet with a nutritionist to figure out what your goals are. They had this one um, dude who was like, Hey, I'd like to lose 20 pounds. Okay, tell me about yourself. Your metabolites are here. and that. Like, I eat a lot of carbs for breakfast. I have a sweet tooth. That's my thing. And then they were like, okay, here's a bunch of recommendations. Try this. Come back in a month for our next meeting that he already paid for. Doesn't show up for six months. And they're curious, like, what happened to this guy? And then, so they follow up eventually and they track him down. They're like, hey, what happened? Why haven't you come back? He's like, oh, because I, I met my goal. I lost 20 pounds. I'm like, that's great. And then they were like, what'd you do? He's like, you told me that I had a sweet tooth and, and then I was trying to figure out what to do. And I like cereal, cold things. And so you said, why don't you eat watermelon? And I said, how much watermelon? And you said, as much as you would like. And I was like, oh, got it. Simple. It's something that I like to do. I made a simple swap And you told me the ground rules were eat as much as you want. Watermelon is one of those calorie negative foods that takes as much energy to consume and digest as you get from it. And so this dude, I don't know how many watermelon rinds he had in his garbage can, but literally I got my goal. It was done. I didn't need to interact with you at all, but they would not have found this absent just asking like who here has had their life transformed by our category. And in particular within that insight was... Boy, oh boy, does the science really not matter. It is actually the nutritionist. That's where all the value add is, right? Like you might have a science nerd who's, oh my God, helping my metabolites or this and that. No, Um, that is perhaps what gets them in the door. It provides you credibility to have the conversation for them to be vulnerable about what they want and what they do. But it is really the playbook is how do you get somebody who is engaged? The science brings them in. But then how do you solve their problem with a simple, easy to follow swap? You like this, do this instead. And then from there, massive health results can come about. And what was really telling for us was like, do not invest more in the science. Go talk to people who've had great results and figure out what are the common themes behind that. So that, because the goal is not people get educated about metabolites. The goal is helping people reach their goals in a way that they can actually do it. E.g., give me your Mount Rushmore of watermelon recommendations and then we're good to go, right? Um, but does that help? Like, Sometimes you just have to, as Pablo said, be curious and brave enough to face the fact that not everybody may have been transformed by your service or product. But that eventually you'll hit somebody who's like, my life totally changed because of it. And let me tell you about it. Why? And you may never have hearted otherwise absent asking.
1: But what made him a super consumer? What made him more valuable to the business since he didn't come back? Yeah,
2: you have to view them through the lifetime value lens, right? Perhaps they buy a lot. Some categories are expandable and you can buy a lot. Your category is fixed, so maybe you can't, right? He was an extraordinarily profitable one. Didn't show up for the rest of his services. Okay, fine, great. And he was extraordinarily valuable from a referral word of mouth perspective. And that whether it was him doing it or us saying, can we tell your story? Absolutely sure. And forever he is known as the watermelon guy, right? And it is a word of mouth. We've written about it. It is the greatest marketing that you can ever have. It is the cheapest marketing that you can ever have. And that the super consumer is so multidimensional and and faceted in how they add value. So you just have to make sure you explore every
0: avenue of it. Awesome. Eddie, as I think you remember my passion is community creation as value for business development. And when I first read your book, I was really blown away by this, by the data points that you have in there. Because in my first big success case, we had this community of about 3,500 people. And in year one, it led to this $40 million channel that established and changed like the client acquisition dynamics of everything. And when we looked back, it was exactly what we said. It was about 30 people that were really driving that bus, right? Like It was the super consumer that we niched into. And this has fortunately allowed me to go on and speak about stuff. And, and as I told you, I got a presentation coming up for community managers, right? There's the field of community management that is happening in tech, and they seem to be right now... In this tech recession, the first people to get cut. The value I want to bring to them is this idea that if they latch onto the concept of category design, then they're going to be able to justify their jobs as this economic windfall. So teach them a little bit about it. And then I want to talk to them about super consumers. If you were in that room and you were talking to a group of community managers, how would you advise them to justify the value of community for a tech company that is trying to, that is, category design thinking how how would you advise that that thought process
2: We, we wrote a mini book category pirates around three types of marketing that matter and i think we lead off with marketing that does not drive revenue is called arts and crafts right and so the three types of marketing that matter drives revenue category potential and market cap the same you can do a swap out for marketing with every other function in the organization finance that doesn't drive revenue, HR that doesn't drive revenue, community managers that don't drive revenue, category potential or market cap. It's just fun and games and play. And that might seem daunting for a community manager. Like I'm not sales, I'm not marketing. And aha, number one is that I don't care what your title is. Everybody's job is sales, right? That's kind of one. Two is that if they buy into that, then it's how would I drive sales? I mean, you have a direct line to the super consumers, presumably in the community. So the way that I would do that is, A, your job is not community manager. Your job is sales. Okay, got it. What do I do about that? Within your community, there are supers. They're not everybody. Focus on the ones that spend the most time, money, uh, time, money, and energy. Okay, got it listen to them. What are their problems? Like, why are they super? Why are they weird? Right? Ask that seven times and go deep until you figure out there's something about that allows you to innovate. Hey, if we just ask the right question, what would need to be true for you to spend crazy amounts more? I got something to tell sales. I got something to tell marketing. I got something to tell product innovation. I got something to tell blah, 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 blah. And by the way, the The ability to be the voice of the super has extraordinarily val is value, right? and it, and it could be we're about to lose these people if we don't do x, y, and z. Or did you know that if you just made x, y, and z change that we could charge double for what we're charging now? Or did you know that we're this close because in our community, there are x people that drive the line share of our revenue. And by the way, there are thousands of more of them that exist in the universe. Let's go tell investor relations and talk about there's, do you, did you see that there's, I forget, I think it was in the journal, even the last year or so. Uh, everyone knows the brand Pedialyte, designed for babies and infants. You know who the super consumers are of that? Drunk, frat, college kids and stuff. Hangovers, it's a great cure or medium or medicine remedy for that. And it took forever for them to figure out how to lean into that As an alternative way to imagine, this is what I always talk about and write about is that Rogaine would have been four to 10 times larger had they not launched as a men's hair replacement product, but a women's hair thinning prevention service, right? And it's just, look, men are lazier when it comes to personal care than women. Men can go bald. That's totally fine. Women, hair thinning, eh, for right or for wrong. It's a way bigger problem and prevention has way more money than cure. Your job is sales. Look for the weirdos among you. Go Y seven times deep and then bring that opportunity, that billion dollar opportunity of revenue, cost savings, or market cap to the relevant people and see if you
0: get their attention. And that's how you keep your job
2: and do more. I love it.
0: I love it. Tip of of the spear of curiosity about the super consumer and then conveyor of the lessons learned for the go-to-market team. And you got a job for a while. I appreciate the answer, man.
3: So Eddie, you're about to talk to Nick Bennett, who is definitely one of your fans. He's a super of category thinkers. Go for it, Nick. Definitely.
6: Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I've read, I think, every category pirates (laughs) thing you guys put out. I love the stuff. So anyway, I'm curious about how this applies. And maybe just there's just like a barrier in my brain, because a lot of this stuff is about uh, B2C product or tech. How do we apply this to B2B service? And I'll give you some context here. In a past position, we sold... The way that I described it was success with intellectual property. We weren't selling the IP. The IP is in a book. It's free. There's the internet. We were selling success with the information. We were making the result happen. And that service was 200 k to do it. Now, you said 0.5% of supers account for 80% of the revenue of the thing and so I'm trying to draw these connections here the way that I identified our supers none of them were the people who were highly engaged in the information talking about it a lot none of those people were spending 200k with us the people who spent the money didn't interact or engage publicly or or really apply force to word of mouth in any way that I could tell or any really meaningful way like driving referrals and things like that so I guess help me think through it or how do you think about this and like the idea of super consumers and applying it in that context. Yeah. So look, give me a little more background. So
2: B2B services, success with IP. Like, what Can you give me a very specific example?
6: Yes. Yeah, this was at a, at a past employer, but basically we had a book and there was a group of people who wanted to... It was a marketing agency, consulting, training stuff. And what they wanted to do was take the information that they learned in the book and they couldn't see success with it on their own. So they would hire us as a firm to be able to guide them through that process. And so that training program was $200,000. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were looking for? Is there something else? Yeah, so, so there,
2: there was a, um, it, it, it's, it, am I thinking this correctly? Is that it's a service for training and development around a particular idea?
6: Is that right? Uh, correct. The, the thing was to mostly B2C service-based businesses Uh, applied the IP to hire uh, marketers to be able to start doing uh, their own marketing in-house versus training versus hiring uh, an outsourced vendor to do it. Um, And typically it's, it's a thing you only buy once. Like you, you go through the program and it's finite and then it's, and then it's complete. Yeah. So
2: it, it sounds like in that scenario, it's for people who we want to broaden the aperture from your service or that company service to the category of IP training development and et cetera, et cetera. And that in my experience as a consultant and at, at the Cambridge group and, and other B2B scenarios is that super consumers in, in B2B services in particular way, easy to find in the sense that you're not dealing with millions of consumers. You're dealing with a finite number of customers out there that you can count and whatever, And that my, my sense of it is if, so, so your category, the old company is similar to the one that Lisa raised is that it's simply not an expandable consumption category where you can buy lots of, or you're going to pay more for it. But so if you, number one, if you don't have any kind of economic variance in the data, you, you can look for time and emotion. And it sounds like maybe they weren't spending more time or they weren't talking about it in a way. Number two, you can create more data. Sounds like to me that there should have been a good, better, best. 200 grand, 250, 300 and that would create some variation on that or an add-on service that they could subscribe to or whatever else it is, right? So you can when you don't have data you can create the data by offer changing their offer. And then number 3 is follow the abundance, right? There you might have two companies that they both pay 200 grand for the same thing. Um a super consumer is a grateful consumer, meaning they bought the category or your category and they got something amazing out of it. So they buy the category over and over again. They're not afraid to pay a price premium. They evangelize it at the wazoo. And that if you follow the transformation and the abundance, then whether they're talking about it or not, if they're not talking about it, they'd be glad to talk about it more often than not. Because it, it's, have you ever met somebody who's like, this thing changed my life? Can't shut them up about it, right? they just going on and on about it in that. Most likely, my, my thinking on that one is, again, look for the emotion and the time, if not that, create your own data by offering variants, right? Like this, this is part of the Netflix article that we wrote about in HBR is that they've done a much better job of offering different price tiers. But the singular problem with Netflix is that you can binge all the volume you want, but you can't pay more than whatever it is nineteen ninety nine a month, right? I suppose you could you could buy multiple subscriptions for me versus my wife versus my kids, but that doesn't make any sense, right? This is one where if you don't have the data, go create it and if you can't create it, just go follow the economists call it surplus. invariably, um, if you had ten buyers of your service that um, not all ten will have had the same results. One will have had massive results. And what you want to do is go follow that person and treat them and figure out what the heck is going on and why did you get the results? And what you'll probably find is, oh, I probably needed to change how I charge for this in a way to reflect that you got the better of the abundance equation and that's great. But going forward, I need to be able to take your testimonial, play it out and charge a different way to capture that abundance in a way that makes more sense. Is
6: that? help? Yeah, absolutely. There's an element of this that I'm still trying to think through, which is the super consumers that I identify, like the people who were hyper engaged in all of the events that we were doing like this. And there's a million things that we were doing. They were extremely loud about and the category, the intellectual property and all that stuff. Those people never purchased. They didn't, and they largely didn't have the means to purchase, but they didn't, after talking with them, they were more interested in all the other aspects of it than they were purchasing. And Maybe this was just the business's like failure to mobilize their, or activate those super consumers, like you're saying, which is there wasn't a product available for them. Mm-hmm.
2: So, sounds to me, and that would be my hypothesis, is that one of the things that Christopher and I talk about is your pricing should be, for a lot of people, really crazy expensive and absolutely free, or or in some variations in between there. And that if you had activity and energy, but no buyers, then to me, it sounded like there should have been a $20,000 price point, a $2,000 price point, a $200 price point or whatever. And that like, this is one where you want, you don't want overly complex pricing, but you want enough so that you can evaluate where is the market. And you might've concluded the same thing with Tesla 10 years ago. It was like, the market for EVs ain't that big because they only offer it at a hundred grand. And then, well, lo and behold, as you lower the price of the offer, The market gets bigger with it so that is probably my hypothesis for what you're struggling with in that scenario is that you are generating a lot of surplus and a lot of people were benefiting from it and not as much you guys (laughs) look like
6: yeah it's like flies in the face of conventional business growth wisdom which says like raise the price more and more versus the tesla approach which is go downstream like everyone wants to go enterprise and move up and up and charge 500 grand for the same thing. But clearly it's conventional. That's, that's the beauty
2: of supers and, and pricing and category design. Category design can be done by making something 10x more expensive than the incumbent category or a 10th as expensive. And that a super consumer will help you understand in what cases that makes the most sense.
3: That's awesome, Eddie. Thanks, Nick. Guys, thank you so much to everybody for taking the full hour and Eddie for your graciousness of parting your wisdom on us. These AMAs are awesome. We love the live format. Special shout out to Lori Goldman. It was her idea to do a book club. And Eddie, you were the first person that came to mind. We've overdone Play Bigger a few times. So you're next on the list and certainly not the last. And I didn't get a chance to talk to you about category investing, but we're going to.
2: Let's do that the next
0: time.
3: Yeah, we'll do that. That'll be a fun episode.
0: There you go. The legendary Eddie Yoon. If you were listening to this podcast thinking, God, I wish I could have been there for that, there's a solution. Go to categorythinkers.com and join our free Slack community. We host events like these every once in a while. We also have jam sessions where we discuss current events in category design. And more than anything, you get to join almost 600 other category designers and category thinkers that are trying to differentiate, trying to apply this stuff in real time. So when you're done just listening and you want to join the conversation about category design, go to categorythinkers.com.